This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bible, turn to the book of Daniel chapter 3 tonight, if you would. Daniel chapter 3. A uh, common, if you will, uh, story from the Bible. Uh, and uh, common, uh, typically, uh, I was talking about this with uh, John Stoker a couple weeks ago, and he said, he said, man, you hear that a lot in uh, Sunday school. It's a Sunday school story, but you don't often hear it uh, preached on a, in, in church. And so uh, we're going to kind of uh, flip the script tonight, if you would. <laughs> No lie, I've been, been praying and thinking about this particular uh, uh, topic. Does anybody need a copy of the notes tonight? Raise your hand. We have uh, ushers with, with notes. If you need notes or a pen. I was, uh, I was praying specifically about what I wanted to preach tonight. I wanted to preach something challenging to our church family, something encouraging to our church family, uh, but something that uh, uh, kind of uh, sets the, kind of the trajectory, if you will, for our church and the direction uh, that we're going in the direction that we want to go uh, as we pursue Christ together as a church. And... Um, my daughter Tallulah came home uh, from her Sunday school class, and she goes, Dad, did you know that there was three boys that wouldn't bow down? Uh, I said, yeah, I did. What were their names? She told me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I said, no, the last one, his name was Under the Bed We Go. And she was like, no, it wasn't. It was Abednego. I said, no, it's Under the Bed We Go. She was like, Dad, stop it. And so she was so mad at me about that. And so we, we talked about what that meant, and I said, they refused to bow down. And I thought to myself, man, that is so what our church needs to hear. And so I uh, began to just do a lot of prayer and a lot of study in that passage, and uh, here's what we got tonight. Uh, Daniel chapter 3, uh, verse number 1. We're going to read through verse number uh, 18 this evening. Daniel chapter 3, starting verse number 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits, and he set upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. The Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, governors, and the captains, and the judges, and the treasurers, counselors, and sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So mind you, everybody who was somebody got invited to this day of the unveiling of the golden image. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, and the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together into the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And a herald cried aloud, It's you that is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, that ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Whoso falleth not down at the worship shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people and the nations and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews, and they spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man shall hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whosoever falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee, and they serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, It's true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, is it true that you do not serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if you be ready at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, and the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well... But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we don't really care what you think about our answer that we have. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not... 
Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. As we take a look at our society, our world that we live in today, we've been asked to bow down to a lot of gods. Now, we don't have any graven images. There's no statues that we have to uh, bow down to. Uh, there's no idols that we're commanded to worship. But as we've taken a look through Romans chapter 1, I think most of us have identified in our own lives areas of idolatry, areas where we've kind of pushed God out to the side and placed either ourselves or things in our life in God's place, and we've chose to worship those things instead. We take a look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This story really boils down to two different things, worship and faith. As I think about the type of church that I want who we call it to be in accordance to Scripture, there's two things that come to mind when I think of a church like that. It's worship and faith. Now, again, worship is not relegated to the music that we sing, although that's an aspect of worship. But worship really takes place on how you deal with yourself tomorrow morning at work. Tomorrow morning when you walk down the street, tomorrow when you go check the mail, tomorrow when you go grab coffee, tomorrow when you go grab lunch uh, with somebody, that's where worship takes place as well. Man, I enjoy singing music, man. I, I've just been so encouraged uh, by the music here today uh, and just been fired up by that. If, you're, if you came to the 10 o'clock service, you missed it because uh, Greg K brought his own hype section over here at the 8 o'clock service. And, dude, they were hype. Man, it was so good. I mean, like, I, I'm preaching and people are clapping. Yeah. I was like, whoa. Uh, like, love it. And it's like, Greg, I don't know what you missed out on, man, but you missed that part. Because, like, Greg's just, like, quiet and he's chill and he just sits back there and plays and he's happy. Man, he brings his family. It's like, man, this is the spirit crew over here, right? Man, the, here's the thing. I love it. Because you don't have to, to question like, hmm, I wonder what those people over there are all about, man. They'll let you know. Like, we're all about Jesus. We're all about the resurrection. We're all about the second coming of Christ. Uh, we're all about Bible preaching. We love the gospel. Like, you don't have to question that. And here's the thing. I'm not trying to get you to manufacture something in a church service or try to, to clap. I'm not trying to encourage any type of atmosphere like that. I'm just saying, like, what gets you fired up? I often ask people the questions I'm getting to know them, you know, like, hey, uh, what are you passionate about? I asked somebody that a few weeks ago, and they're like, what do you mean by that? I mean, like, what gets you fired up? What are you excited about? And they said, well, why don't you just ask, like, what things do you like? Well, I mean, like, I like pizza. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Like, like I, I, I like I like Duke's hula pie, you know? I mean, if you've never had hula pie, you're missing out, man. You need to get yourself a slice. It'll help you. But, like, I'm not passionate about those things. Like, I don't sit up at night and think about pizza, only some nights. Um, I don't, like, like study out pizza on the Internet and things like that. I'm not, I, I like those things, but I'm not passionate about them. What, like, gets you fired up? And, and if it's not something that's connected in some way to the Bible, I would say you, you should probably check your heart on what gets you fired up. I'm not saying like every time you read the Bible, you got to be shouting and, and hollering and stuff like that. Uh, for me, one of the things people ask me, what are you passionate about? I'm passionate about helping people. Well, how do you do that? I direct them back to the only book that will last the test of time, the Word of God. And, and no lie, uh, what made you decide I want to be a pastor? First of all, I didn't decide I wanted to be a pastor. I feel like I was called by God. And again, I say feel because God didn't speak to me audibly and tell me what I'm supposed to do. I felt a burden, a compelling, a passion to reach a city with the gospel. That got me fired up and a kind of a byproduct of that. Uh, the local New Testament church, somebody's got to pastor it. Uh, I'm willing to do that to, to help people to find Jesus and fix their life problems from the Bible. I'm passionate about that. That kind of goes back to worship. Worship should be this deep soul level connection that you have to the greatness, the awesomeness, and the majesty of who God is. And you should be passionate about things like that. No, no lie, there's been twice in the last six months uh, that I've been listening to something in the car while I'm driving, and I had to pull over to the side of the road because I was overwhelmed by a spirit of worship. And I'm not talking about some, some weird mystical feeling, you know, where like the whole road went black and I just felt led to pull over to the side of the road and I don't even remember pulling over, but the Holy Spirit directed me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being so overwhelmed with a spirit of worship, like I can't even 
drive a car and think right now because I'm just so consumed with the goodness of God and His grace. Like, it should grip you like that. And, and again, I've heard this my entire life, and so I hate to be that, that old pastor who says stuff like this, but no lie, people get way more fired up about sports and football and basketball and baseball and stuff like that than they do the things of God, and we should check our hearts on those things. I got no problem if you're passionate about watching football. That's fine. Can you be a little bit more passionate for the things of God? That's all. So if you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you don't have to ask, well, I wonder what these three young men were passionate about. They're just like, hey, We've drawn a line in the sand. We're passionate about the things of God. We're not going to desecrate the worship of our God with the, the worship of false gods. You're like, that's just not even a thing. But secondly, we see that these guys were men of great faith. We talked about faith this morning in this morning's message. And if you just thought this morning's message was just for, you know, the unsafe folks that happen to be here, you missed this morning's message. You should go back and re-listen to it. Do you really believe that Jesus can fix the things that are broken in your life? If you do, you need to run back to him every opportunity that you get because you need him far more than you think that you do. But as I look at the type of church that I want, to, I want a church that, that is real, authentic worship. I want a church that is real, authentic faith. And again, I'm not casting my vision of the type of things that I want. We look in Scripture, and this is the type of church that Jesus requires from us, is that we would live by faith. And my fear, again, I don't have any concrete evidence on this. I'm not speaking, you know, uh, again, we don't speak prophecy and, you know, God gave me a vision. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just saying a fear that I have of mine is that when our church gets to the point where we are now, where we're almost a decade old, people have come and go, gone at this point, and it's almost just like we got things rolling, we got some good momentum going, and we're just like chugging right along, that we're just like, hey, I think we're good now. I mean, like, like our church is growing, new people are coming. Hey, uh, the last couple of months, we've almost had baptisms every single month. I mean, we're starting discipleship. New people are being discipled. Some people are discipling for the first time. They've never done that before. We just started our 11th small group. And uh, I mean, hey, church is going. I mean, like somebody's in there teaching our kids stuff from the Bible, I guess. And I mean, like, I think we're good. I fear a spirit like that because that is a 100% lack of faith. Hey, why do we need God to show up if we've got everything squared away? I mean, we've got a website that's drawing people in. You know, people drive by and see us. That's coming in. Why do we have to share our faith? You know, I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, discipleship. I'm learning a lot of facts about the Bible. Do I really need that in my life? Hold up. Oh, people are still coming, you know. I guess we could just put it on autopilot. No, 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 no. This church is a church that has always and will always be, as long as I'm the pastor, but a church that lives by faith. We don't have room for kick it in neutral, put on the cruise control, turn it on autopilot, and just sit back and just see what happens. We have to be intentional with our worship and intentional with our faith. And so if we ever find ourselves where we get to the point of comfort, we need to shake things up a little bit. It's probably uh, 2010, 2011 time frame. Uh, we were living in uh, Lancaster, California. We just bought a uh, beautiful house, only house we've ever owned in our life, uh, uh, at the end of a cul-de-sac. And um, I'd been in the ministry there for, man, probably uh, going on about eight years or so. I finally got to the point where I was making kind of a livable wage. We could, like, pay our mortgage and pay groceries, and, and we could go out to eat once or twice a month and not have to struggle and it finally got to the point where things were starting, kind of starting to level off. And we started a single adult Sunday school class. It began to grow. And, and man, we were good. And it was just like, wow, this is awesome. You know, my kids are going to grow up and go to the Christian school. After they graduate the Christian school, there's a Bible college here on the campus. They can go to Bible college there. They're going to meet their spouse here, uh, either in Christian school or at the Bible college. And then uh, they're going to get married in the auditorium at the church, obviously. And, man, I'm just going to sit back here, and, and, man, I'll be buried here on the back 40 of the property. You know, I'm, this is it. And no, I'll never forget as long as I live, I read a book uh, that challenged my faith. And it hearkened back to Hebrews 11.6. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I read that book, and I was, I remember that verse that was quoted in that book, and I was terrified. 
because I recognized at that point in my life and the life that I was leading my family into, we didn't need faith anymore because everything was really good. Our bills were getting paid. We just bought a house. Our mortgage was, was good. You know, we had a Sunday school class. It was growing. And like faith, man, I didn't pray like I used to because it's it, it settled. We're good. And man, it was just at that point, God began to grip my heart. It's like, if you're not living by faith, you do not please me. And so, well, I'm good. It was good. All right. You should look it up sometime. There's a thing called globophobia. It's the, the, the uh, irrational fear of balloons exploding. Uh, and so, some of you say, it's not irrational. It just happened, right? I got it. I got it. You're good. Oh, man. I was telling a story that tied into the message. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no lie, I began to, at times, pray and sometimes argue with God. Hey, God, you blessed me with this. Why, why would you call me to, to step out on faith? I mean, isn't this the reward of previous faith? Think about that for a second. God, are you calling me into a life where I no longer have to live by faith because I've already done that? And then you look at the, the flawed logic behind that because the just shall live by faith. There's not an end of that faith that we do. Like, oh, I've already lived by faith in the past. I don't have to anymore. And we as a church family might be like, oh, yeah, I remember the days where we did live by faith. Those days aren't past. We're still living by faith. We're still trusting God for more. And so as we look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's a story of worship and faith. Idolatry, while it was unique in this situation here, it's also addressed by the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. And again, while you and I don't have graven images that we set up in our house to bow down to, idolatry finds its place into our hearts. First two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you'll make no graven images. First two commandments. Idolatry deals with our heart. I was talking to missionary Dave Board, and we began to talk about people that would come to faith to Christ in Cambodia. I said, hey, what does the process look like for discipleship and baptism and things like that there? He said, if somebody puts their faith and trust in Christ, we'll continue to watch their life to figure out if their life matches up with their profession that they've made. He said, we will never, ever baptize someone who still has idols up in their house. Stop by their house. They still got idols up there. You don't understand yet what it means to be a committed follower of Christ. You can't get baptized yet. And I was just like, wow, that's fascinating. And then the thought occurred to me, how awesome would that be, right? Like, I come over to your house, you get a bunch of idols up, and I go, obviously you're an idolater. No, you know? But I have to sit with you and try to talk you through this process of identifying if you really have idols or not, right? It'd be really easy to just look and go, ah, idolater, done. It's harder to look at your heart here on a Sunday night, when you come to church on a really long day, many of you served at the 8 o'clock service or the 10 o'clock service and went to the opposite service, and you're here again at 5 o'clock, it's very hard to look into a heart like that and say, am I an idolater or not? But the decisions that we'll have to make as we live out our faith will determine whether or not we're steeped in idolatry or not. And we've got to be careful with that. While we're not asked to bow down to a golden image, we are expected to bow down to the image of culture. Culture has an expectation of what you should and shouldn't do. If you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time in your life, there's probably been somebody who says, hey, I know you got the Jesus thing going on, but don't get too carried away with that. Probably heard that before. Hey, it's good that you got something to believe in, just don't go all weird with it and stuff. And, and trust me, I've seen weird with it and stuff, right? There's weird stuff out there, for sure. But generally when people say that, they're not talking about things like, you know, like putting a bunch of huge white, you know, scripture references on the back of your car where your whole can't see out your back window because you've got Bible verses. That's not what they're talking about. They're generally talking about things like, well, I don't let my kids watch R-rated movies. Whoa, whoa, whoa. But whenever you, your kids get out into the world, they're just going to rebel against everything you told them. They're going to drink and smoke dope and sleep around and watch already movies. So you should just let them do that now. <laughs> Absolutely not. And I pray to God that if I've discipled my children well enough, when they become to adult age, they won't desire the things of the world. 
And if my kids do, I'll feel like an utter failure because I didn't disciple well. But here's the thing. I can't bow down to what culture says is appropriate because our culture is corrupt. Now, again, I realize that I'm putting myself in a precarious situation as, you know, the old preacher who tells you how corrupt society is and we just need to, like, stand fast while culture around us goes to hell in a handbasket. I get it. I run that risk, but that's also where we're at today. And, and things are way worse today than they were 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. We live in a culture today that celebrates sin. We live in a culture today that celebrates excess, extravagance. We live in a culture today that, that celebrates promiscuity and sexual immorality. We can't bow to that culture. We say, well, I'll never bow to that culture. Many of you have. And the worst part is, here's the worst part. You don't even know it. I don't know if you guys caught this in uh, Tim Miller's message that he preached a couple of weeks ago. Talking about Samson. I'm reading through the book of Judges. It's part of my uh, personal worship right now. And Samson went up after Delilah had cut his hair. And he shook himself as before. And he knew not that the Spirit of God had left him. Samson didn't know what the Holy Spirit even felt like because he was so wrapped up in his own self. Again, that just goes to show that we're very good at deceiving our own hearts. Have you given into idolatry? Have you given into the culture? Do you feel the need to keep up with everybody else? I read an article this past week that um, they did like a, I think it was like a 10-year study a scientific study, not just like some, you know, American Family Research Council did a study, like a scientific study by scientists who aren't Christians, who yet another study comes out. Regardless of your personality type and the way that you're wired, social media has a direct connection with depression. Direct connection. Not like collateral connection, direct connection. And I began to read through the article and he's talking about how Almost every single person that spends more than, uh, I forget what the number was, it's something like 45 minutes a day on social media, exhibits certain signs of depression. And I thought to myself, here's the worst part about it. We know this stuff to be fact. Why do we continue to spoon feed it to children? Why do we continue to consume it? Again, look, our church is on social media because it's a free opportunity to tell people about what God's doing in our city and some people in our church have found us on Facebook and things like that that are still here today. And I'm thankful for outreach opportunities. But please understand the danger that you are inviting into your own life and into your own home when you open yourself wide open to social media. Now, again, maybe you're someone who has the, the ability to, you know, compartmentalize and, hey, I'm going to use this for good as an opportunity to glorify God and I've, I've drown out all the, the garbage that's out there. Maybe that's you. Um, I, I can't do it. My heart won't allow me. But I refuse to allow culture to dictate the way that I live my life. I refuse to allow culture to determine the way, the, to dictate and determine the way that our church operates. We're going to continue to stand for right. We're going to continue to stand for the word of God. We're going to continue to preach the gospel. We're going to continue to reach out into our community. And we're not going to bow down to the God, to the golden image of culture. You say, yeah, amen, pastor, that's good. Hang on, I'm getting to you in just a second, all right? While we're not asked to bow down to the golden image, we are tempted to bow to the God of comfort. This is hard. I mean, like, who wants to be uncomfortable, right? I mean, am I asking people to sleep on the floor and sleep on a rubber yoga mat instead of sleeping in a bed? Should everybody take cold showers, you know, because we, we don't want to, uh, you know, be too comfortable? Again, the, the idea of like monks in a monastery, you know, forgoing pleasure, forgoing, uh, you know, money and things like that, taking a vow of poverty, that's not what God's asked us to do. But he has asked us to deny ourselves. That he has done. And again, we've got to find out where that line exists for us when we're just using the blessings that God's given us and we cross the line into seeking and craving comfort. I pray to God every single day that God would raise up from our church 
a guy that would go out and plant a church here in the city of Honolulu, and by the grace of God, we're going to do that in the next four years. And it's going to be incredible. I really believe that. But I've also been praying since the beginning of Hui Kala that God would raise up a family that would leave Hui Kala and go to a mission field somewhere. Pick up and move. And so the question I would have for you tonight is, is it you that I've been praying for? Pastor, like, I couldn't. I mean, like, I got a job and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so does everybody else. Well, you're like, I can't do that. I mean, like, I got, like, kids and school and stuff. Yeah, so does everybody else. Well, I mean, like, I don't have, like, the, the training that would be required to, like, go to, like, a foreign country. What, what training do you need to go alongside somebody who has already planted a church and just love people and share the gospel? Like, I'm just, I'm just throwing stuff out here, okay? I'm just trying to get your wheels turning and get you thinking. Like, what if you figured out a way to support yourself financially so that you could move to Ethiopia and buy a place two doors down from the Love Groves, love their family, serve their family, serve in the church there and just be a, a faithful dude or a faithful gal and just serve Jesus there? What type of Bible college training do you need for something like that? I don't know that you need any. You just need a willingness and a surrender. But I mean, like, I mean, it's like Ethiopia. Yeah, I know. That's not very comfortable, is it? Well, I got like a car payment and stuff like that. Okay, sell your car. I mean, like, look, I could give you 10,000 reasons why we shouldn't have come to Honolulu to plant this church. But there came a point where God asked us to step out on faith and trust him. Look, when we moved to Honolulu, we, we knew what it meant to, to leave California. When we left California, we rented our, our house for a year with the intention of selling it by the time we got here because we knew that there, we couldn't go back to California ever again. Like That's done. It's cut off. And we knew by selling that house, we're never going to own a house here again. I mean, look, when we moved here, the median home price in the city of Honolulu was $750,000. I thought to myself, three quarters of a million dollars for a house. Who would pay that? We're going to wait till the market goes down, right? <laughs> Heavens. I think we're like $1.1, $1.2 million. But hey, get this. If owning a house was one of our top three goals in life, it's the worst decision we've ever made in our entire life to move to the city of Honolulu. I mean, look, I'm not getting any younger. My kids aren't getting any younger. Don't, don't my kids deserve a yard to run around in and play with their friends down the street? Don't my kids deserve to go down by the creek and skip rocks like I used to when I was a kid? Don't my kids deserve to ride four-wheelers with the cousins on the weekends? I guess so if those are your priorities. But God didn't call us to a life of comfort. He called us to a life of sacrifice. Here's what Jesus says. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That doesn't, comfort doesn't factor in in any of those factors right there. Every single one of those are uncomfortable. Self-denial, uncomfortable. Death to self by taking up a cross, uncomfortable. Following Jesus, I saw where following Jesus led the apostles, and it wasn't good. So again, comfort doesn't factor in any of that. You might not be bound down to the culture. You might not feel the desire to own nice things or a big house or things like that, but everybody wants to be comfortable I mean, is it a sin to have a nice car? I don't think it's a sin to have a nice car at all. I think it's a sin to put your nice car above the kingdom, for sure. I think it's a sin when you steal from God and not giving God what he asks, the tithe, offering, first fruit giving. You steal from God and then you buy nice things for yourself. I think that's a sin 100%, and God promises that he doesn't bless that. But I'm talking about, like, Checking my heart. Am I willing to be uncomfortable if it means the kingdom going forward? And I was encouraged as I, as I flipped through our missions commitments for this year. Our church uh, last year committed uh, $3,000 a month to monthly missions giving. This year, we committed $4,500. I don't know if you're taking score at home, but that's a 150% increase. I, I call that a win, you know? Or 50% increase. I'm bad at math. Uh, so <laughs> it's big. Just know that. It's big. All right? But I look at that and I think, man, we're getting it. 
We're getting a heart for missions. What did we give uh, the year before that? Something paltry like $1,000 a month to missions. And so as a church, our heart for missions is growing. But as I look through those cards, and again, none of them had names on them, and, and again, I'm not judging you or anything like that. Just thoughts that are coming through my mind, I'm just being honest. I'm flipping through those cards. None, not a single one of them had a name on it. But I see cards of like $5 a month to missions. And I thought to myself, is the gospel worth, worth less than a venti mocha latte a month? And, and, and again, I'm not judging anybody. And it wasn't one of those cards that I saw. I saw multiple cards like that. And then I'm flipping and I'm seeing like cards like $500 a month. I was like, just a month? Like, do they know it's a month? Somebody came to me and says, Pastor, I stepped out on faith this year and I gave biggest mission commitment that I've ever made. I'm, I'm stepping out on faith. I'm just trusting God. And it was like 50% of what they make in a month. And I thought to myself, this is somebody who gets the gospel. This is somebody who gets the kingdom. I'm not trying to get more money so that I can buy a nicer car, buy nicer clothes, impress people at work. I'm trying to get more so that I can disperse better for the kingdom. Amen. I love that heart. But that doesn't come when we bow down to the God of comfort. I'm just going to confess my sin before you because I already confessed it to God. He's forgiven me of it and I'm clear from it. There came a point in my life early on in our walk with God where I would get news whether it's either being you know, promoted in the military or um, an increase in my job and stuff like that. Hey, you're going to make X amount of dollars more per month. And the question immediately came to my mind, how am I going to spend that? Like, what can that go towards, you know? If I'm making an extra $200 a month and my car payment's $300, can I get a $500 a month car payment? And, and, and no lie, that's how my mind thought. And man, when you get your heart right with God and you say, wow, what more can I do for the cause of Christ with that? Hey, I'm given more influence, not to create a platform for myself or to draw people to me. Uh, God's given me an influence so that I can draw people to Christ. Oh man, what a gift. Look, we don't serve God because it's easy. Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden's light. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that following him and serving him is going to be easy because it won't. It's going to be difficult. Man, there's been some bumps in the road at, at who he calls, but God's been faithful. When we first got the keys to this building, we began to do massive renovation in about 90 days before we could have our first service here uh, at who we call we put about $50,000 in renovation to the other side over there. I mean, like every dollar that we had, we didn't have money for flooring, and the a church donated carpet for us to be able to use. And man, that was a huge, huge blessing for us. And man, we, we got down to that first service. Um, and our church checking account had $125 in it. Our personal savings account had $0 left in it. And, and no lie, we had our grand opening service in October 2013. And I told my wife, if God is gracious to us today, and I trust that he will be, the offering will be enough for us to be able to take a paycheck this week and get groceries. And our paycheck, at the start of who we call it, $200 a week is what we made. And here's the thing, you're like, oh, that's terrible. It wasn't terrible, it was awesome. Because God was so faithful. That first Sunday we passed the offering basket. And Larry Gregory came up to me after the service on a man post-it note. He said, Pastor, here's the offering for today. It was like $1,200. And I remember, I remember where I was standing when Larry brought that to me. And I said to Larry, praise God, man. We're going to make it another week. We got, we got seven more days, man. Like we're going to make it. And it was just week to week those first few months. People would come. People would go. People you thought were going to stay ended up leaving. People who didn't anticipate to come came and stayed and never left. And it was just one step at a time. But it was far from easy. So many times people think, like, well, I'd love to plant a church, you know. You just hang a shingle out the front with your, your sign on, and people just walk in, and then you just, like, start something from scratch. It sounds very romantic, but it's hard. And your life, the way that you serve Jesus is no different. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. There's going to be sacrifices that need to be made. But we don't serve God because it's easy. We don't serve God because it's what we feel like doing. 
taking notes, and I recommend that you do, you should jot this thought out. I'm not led by my feelings. There will be days where you do not feel like serving God. What you should do, just serve God anyways. Look, if I went to the gym when I felt like it, I'd go like once a month. I never feel like going to the gym. But man, every time when I finish a good workout, I was just like, man, I'm really glad I did that. I can't be led by my feelings. You know why? Because I'm slothful, I'm lazy, I'm proud, I crave comfort, I crave attention, I I crave the admiration of other people, and I can't be led by my feelings. I have to be led by something greater than that. And we can't serve God because it's easy or because it's what we enjoy doing, because there's going to come a point in your life where Serving Jesus doesn't bring the joy that it used to. And let me just say, when you find yourself in that position, you've got to stop for a second and ask why, because something's not right. But you don't just stop serving God because you don't have the joy any longer. You fix the problem, what's broken. Because we don't serve God because it's what's easier, it's what feels right, it's because what, what we want to do. We serve it because it's what he expects of us. We don't serve God because it's logical. Look, if you can figure it all out and make sense on paper, you're not living by faith. That was what smacked me in the forehead when we were living in California. Everything was logical. Of course we stay here. Thatcher, at the time, was a senior in high school when we were talking about leaving California. Like, what are we supposed to do? Like, like bands in, in fourth grade? Will we travel the United States for a year? Were they supposed to homeschool them? Like, Thatcher's going to the college that's there on the campus, a Bible college, and we were supposed to be there, like, to drop him off for, like, his freshman year. And all the other parents, you know, got sleeping bags for their kids and bringing suitcases in, dropping their kids off at the door. And we were, like, out somewhere. Dr. dropped himself off. Kind of awkward. But again, it didn't make sense. But if our goal was to have that college drop-off freshman experience like everybody else, then we missed the boat. It's not always going to make sense, logically speaking, it should always make, make sense when we talk about faith. We don't serve God because it's what's expected of us. If somebody asks me to, and I don't want to let them down or disappoint them, just know this. If you're ever serving God for the, the pleasure of someone else, you're missing the boat altogether. I want you to serve Jesus, and I want you to serve Jesus with joy. Our children's ministry workers that serve our children are there because they love pouring into children. If you say, I'm in children's ministry and that's not me, let me know. We'll pull you out next Sunday. No lie. I'm being serious. I'm not trying to be ugly or mean. I, I want to put you somewhere where you enjoy serving Jesus. I taught Awana uh, for, I was scheduled for six weeks. I only made it four. Um, th- this is years ago. Buffy had said, uh, Pastor, we burned through all of our Awana workers. I said, we need, you know, three different teams. We're going to get 20 workers together and we'll put them in teams and phase them uh, in for like a six-month period or a six-week period and then we'll switch them off to a different team and and she was like, I don't think I can get that many workers. I said, I'll do it. And she was like, yeah, I'm going to recruit. And I was like, hey, I need you to help. You know, JJ, I know that, that children's ministry is not your thing, but you can do it because I'm going to do it, right? Um, leading from the front of the pack, and we're going to get it done together. And he was like, well, if pastor's doing it, I can do it. Yeah, that's the spirit. We're going to get it done. And then I got all of our volunteer slots filled. I'm like two weeks into Awana. I realized I don't enjoy sitting with kids in, in, at all, none. <laughs> Here's the thing. These kids were super sweet. They were so kind. They were gracious to me. They really were because I didn't want to be there. Uh, and, and like every week that rolled around, it was Wednesday night. I was just like, I don't want to go to Awana tonight. I just don't. It's just not my thing. But man, what did I do? Man, I put on my blue Awana t-shirt and I was like, hey guys, come on. I want to hear those memory verses. And I'm giving high fives. We're talking about the Bible together and stuff like that. And just at the end of the night, I was just like, I just want to eat a pizza and go to bed. Like I just, not my thing. And so again, I was scheduled for six weeks. Week five, I call Thatcher and I was just like, hey dude, can you take my Awana spot tonight? He's like, yeah, sure. What happened? I just can't do it anymore. Like, oh, Okay, and so that's what took my last weeks because I just didn't have it in me. I never want anybody to serve Jesus out of obligation. We don't do things for the kingdom because it's like, oh, great, I guess I have to. Now I dread going to church on Wednesday nights because I have to sit with four, I had four kids, right? <laughs> four boys. 
my wife in the back working the nursery with like 13 kids, and she's got one on each hip, and like got a bottle wrapped around this one's neck over here, and I got like four boys that are super sweet, and I'm just telling her about how awful my life is. It's just, <laughs> it wasn't my jam. I don't want you to serve God because it's what I expect of you. Oh, well, pastor's saying we need to crank up our commitment to Christ. No, pastor's asking you to just follow Jesus. You can't do it for me or to please me because you're going to get disappointed at some point. Why do we serve God? We serve God because he's worthy. Take a look at verse number 17 in Daniel chapter 3. If it be, so be that our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. Hey, we're not bowing down. That's just not on the list of things that we're willing to do. We're not going to compromise on this. Our God, he's worthy, and we're not going to desecrate his worship by bowing down to a graven image, to an idol. Luke chapter 14, verse number 28. It says, which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he's laid the foundation, is not able to finish it. He that behold, and they that behold it began to mock him, saying, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000, or else, while the other's great way off, he's in an ambassage and desire conditions of peace. Get this. Here's what Jesus says. So many times we've heard that, like, oh, the guy sat down, didn't count the cost, he wasn't able to finish his building, the, uh, the king went to war, he didn't have enough people to finish it, and stuff like that. You miss the connection of that story. You say, like, oh, that guy just didn't count the cost. The cost of what? So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all he hath, he cannot be my disciple. It's connected to your commitment to Christ, your willingness to follow him at the expense of everything else. You need to sit down and count the cost. Are you willing to follow Jesus? Well, yeah, of course. Prove it. Let's see. What does your commitment to Christ look like? I'm asking you to take it up a notch in your commitment to Christ, your willingness to be used of God. Man, I'm praying by the grace of God in four years that we can plant another church out of who we call it. How awesome would it be to plant two churches out of who we call in the next four years? I'm praying that one of these days that some family picks up from who we call it, we can have a prayer service where we gather around you, lay hands on you, and give you like $75,000 to go live in Ethiopia for a year and follow God by faith. How awesome would it be if we had to do that like two or three times a year? Wouldn't that be something? Well, that requires commitment. That requires somebody to sit down and, and count the cost. Hey, look, we've done the math and determined that Jesus is greater than anything that this world has to offer. Amen. We sing a song, and I hope, I hope when you sing songs, you think about the words that you sing and how powerful they are. And one of my, my favorite songs that we sing here, who we call, if you ever wonder why we sing all the time, it's because I love it. Shout to the Lord. Nothing compares to the promise I have in you. Whatever this world has to offer, it pales in comparison to what Jesus has to offer. You take a look at, at even Joseph. Joseph gave up being a son, being around his brothers, being around his family. What did Joseph get in return? Second into command to the largest empire of the world at that time? What he gave up was so inconsequential compared to what he gained. And you and I think that like, oh, I'm giving something up for Jesus if I give an extra $20 a month towards missions. You, you haven't begun to sacrifice yet. You say, well, I feel like you're asking us to give more. I'm not asking you to give more financially. I'm asking you to give God 100% of your heart and let him call 100% of the shots. Amen. That's all. That's what the word Lord means, by the way, master. Why do we live by faith? We live by faith because other people won't. Verse number 18, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Out of everybody that was called out of the entire Babylonian empire at this point, there were three boys that would not bow down. They said, the Jews are causing us problems. But they only identified three young men that were actually the problems causers, the rabble rousers, if you will. Where's all the other Jewish kids? Oh, they're face down in front of the golden idol. That's where they are. It says, the Chaldeans came and said, all the Jews are causing problems. The Jews weren't causing the problems. Three Jewish kids were causing problems. Where's everybody else? They're all bowed down. 
Let me help you with something tonight. We can't expect the unsaved world to live for Jesus. <laughs> I'm so upset. My, my coworker, he cusses like a sailor, and he's, he talks about sexual promiscuity all the time. What do I do? Sinner's going to sin, man. What do you expect of him? You expect him to have worship music on at work? He's an unsaved guy. What's he going to do? I just don't know what to do about it. You love him and you bring him to Jesus. That's what you do. Well, I know, but he won't come to Jesus. Continue to pray then. Don't give up on him. Don't quit. Continue. I mean, I mean I'm talking about walking by faith here, right? The Bible says the just shall live by faith. That's you and I. Those that have been saved live by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. I'm talking about stepping out and getting it done. I'm talking about you being a part of winning our city to Christ because nobody else is. Hey, look, we've gone out on outreach every single month by far before, before COVID every single week in the existence of our church, and we're getting ready to crank that back up too. But in the times that we've been out in our community, I've seen Jehovah's Witnesses, who are a cult. We've seen Mormons, which are a cult. I have yet to meet one Bible-believing Christian out in the neighborhood, going door-to-door, evangelizing. I haven't met one. We've been in, in Honolulu for nine years now, our family. I've never came across another gospel track from another church. Are people getting it done? I'm sure they are. I just haven't seen it yet. I've never had somebody approach me and invite me to church that wasn't a cult. Let me say that again. I've never had somebody who's approached me and invited me to their church that was not in a cult. Thatcher had somebody approach him at Long's in Alamona one time. I think D.D. Grundy had the same situation. Hey, do you have a minute to talk about the Lord? It's just like, it's like, like dangling like a red blanket in front of a bull. I have all day long to talk about Jesus. What do you want to talk about? Well, did you know that God is a woman? And it's actually mother God, not father God. And it's just like, oh, my soul. Are you kidding me? Cult. Uh, I was talking about uh, a man who's been attending church here who's told me yesterday he's part of a cult. Uh, Brian Anderson goes, oh, man, they, they approached me and Anya and basically told us we weren't saved because we didn't get baptized in their church. Man, cult. How many Bible-believing Christians have you intercepted? I, again, there's some out there. I'm not going to say that there's not. I haven't, I haven't met them yet, though. So if we want to say it this way, if we're at war here, reinforcements aren't coming. Either we're going to do it or we're not. We're going to reach our city with the gospel, or we won't. We're not going to sit around and wait for other people to yoke up with us and join up with us, and we're going to have this massive evangelistic outreach, and we're going to rent out the Aloha Stadium before they rip it down and have this big come-to-Jesus crusade where people walk down to the 50-yard line and, and accept Christ as Savior. It's not going to happen. So what do we do? We just continue to live by faith. Well, that's, that's going to be hard. No, it's not. You just have to be obedient. We've got to plant a church in our city to reach our city. I shared this at uh, our outreach yesterday. Depending on the studies that you read, 80 to 90% of all church plants will fail within the first uh, three years. 36 months, 80 to 90% of church plants will fail. We've supported three different church plants since the beginning of who we call it. Two of them didn't make it. That's a real deal. That's a personal statistic. So what do we do with that? We choose to defy the odds because our God is greater than the odds. We continue to trust God and be obedient and walk by faith. Other people aren't. I don't know of any other Bible preaching churches that have been planted in our city since we started Who We Call nine years ago. I know some false teaching churches have been started. I'm talking about if, no, if, if anybody's going to live by faith, it's going to be us. We sacrifice for the kingdom because others won't. <laughs> Again, I can't expect unsaved people to change the world for the better. The gospel changes the world for the better. 
Local New Testament churches change the, God, change the world for the better. Discipleship changes the world for the better. All the plans and programs that the government wants to put together cannot change the way that the local church can change. Look, I'm thankful for the Big Brother, Big Sister program or the Boys and Girls Club and things like that. I'm thankful for anything that seeks to have a positive impact in our community. But lasting, real deal impact and change is going to take place because God's people got serious about God's work. And hey, look, if we're not going to be the people that do it, we can't expect anybody else to do it. I'm just asking you not to bow down to the God of comfort and ask yourself, what do I need to do to... To, to move the ball up the field. And please understand, if we're going to use that analogy of moving the ball up the field, I need all the players on the field. We don't need cheerleaders. We don't need people like, oh, this is so great what God's doing in our church. Well, if it's our church, you need to take some ownership in it. We don't get to ride the coattails of everyone else's work. We get it done. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm not bowing down. It's just not something I'm not going to do. I'm not going to desecrate the worship of our God. I want other people to see us standing up. Look, when, when everybody's face down on the pavement before this idol, it's very obvious who's not bowing down. It wasn't like they could hide. It wasn't like everybody's supposed to stand up and they chose to bow down and they kind of blend in in the crowd. No, they, they, they stand out over everybody. Because they'd drawn a line in the sand that there are some things that weren't worth compromising over. And the kingdom was one of those. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse number 29, and everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that our first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Again, Jesus is calling us to sacrifice here for the kingdom. Not comfortable. And again, I'm just, I'm just going to be transparent with you, okay? Look, we knew that by moving farther away from our family. We're already in California. We were 2,500 miles away from family. By moving farther away, 5,000 miles away from our nearest family member, we knew that we weren't getting together every Thanksgiving and Christmas with family. We just knew that. Look, to fly a, a family of six to Tennessee or Kentucky to visit family in the holidays, a family of six, I'm going to spend $8,000 to go to some redneck town in Kentucky? No thanks, I'll pass on that. I'll spend eight grand, I'm going like, to go somewhere like Japan or Korea or somewhere, I can go to Kentucky. Just, sorry. But guess what? Do you know how many times my kids' birthday parties have been attended by their grandparents in their lives? None. Just had it happen. Oh, don't you feel sorry for my kids? Please don't feel sorry for my kids. They have a family here that most people will never know in their lifetime. They, we've missed out on nothing whatsoever at all by being away from family because God's given us a family here. And so... When Jesus says things like, hey, if we need to forsake family to advance the kingdom, we're willing to do that. Amen. Because we believe that Jesus will reward us a hundredfold in the kingdom is what he said. But here's the thing. If you're living for this earth, kingdom riches don't make a lot of sense to you. I don't want kingdom riches. I want riches now. And therein lies the problem with cultural Christianity. Man, I'm not looking to go big here. I'm looking to go big there. Does that make sense? But there's a price that has to be paid for that. I, I love this thought. We live for Jesus because we don't have a plan B. Take a look at verse number 18. Every time I, I read this verse, I am gripped by the truth of it. Take a look at verse 17 first. If it be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. It's a statement of faith there. But look at what... They say in verse number 18, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Hey, God's going to deliver us out of this fiery furnace. But even if he didn't, we're still not going to bow down. I love that. 
Like, we don't have an exit strategy here. What was their exit strategy? Death. We're not going to bow down. We don't have a plan B. Another thing that, that overwhelms my soul with joy, the same attitude, the same spirit, is what Peter said in John chapter 6, verse number 66, when all the people who followed Jesus had went away. In John 6, 67, Jesus turned to his apostles and he says, well, you go away also. And Peter, who's known for saying the most ridiculous things in all of the Bible, right, finally gets it right, like one out of two times in the whole Bible that he gets something right. And he says this, Master, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Like, if we don't follow you, like, we have no life. I had well-meaning Christians ask us when we started who we call it. Hey, what are you guys going to do if you get over there and it doesn't work out? Uh, I don't know. I haven't gotten that far yet. Well, don't you think you should have contingency planning? I'm not planning for God to fail at all. It's not. Man, if I have to deliver pizzas at night, I'll do that to keep this thing afloat. If I got to work a full-time job to be able to pastor people and share the gospel and do something great for the cause of Christ and advance the kingdom, I'm willing to do whatever it takes because I don't have a plan B. Look, when we sold our house in California, you know why we sold it? We didn't sell it because we made any money. We sold it for what we owed on it. No lie, the person that we sold it to, who was somebody that I worked at the church with in California, 18 months later sold it for twice what he paid for it. Like made hundreds of thousands of dollars off that house. But we sold the house not because it was financially good for us. We sold it because we didn't want a plan B. Hey, if things don't work out in Hawaii, we still got that house in California we can kind of go back to and church family there that loves us. We can just kind of regroup and lick our wounds and figure out what the next leg of the journey is. No, no, no. There wasn't a plan B. We, we've sold everything. We've given away three quarters of what we own. I'm looking at like art projects that my kids did in kindergarten go like, we don't take this with us. Like, you take a picture and you throw it away. It's just like purge. Why? Because we weren't ever going back there again. We're only moving forward from here. I'm only living by faith from here. I'm only trusting God from here. I'm not going back to the God of comfort again to say, that was a really nice house. We could just always move back there because we have some room to spread out. And we had a three-car garage. I mean, that's like every dude's dream, right? We got the two cars that get us where we need to go, a little project over in the side bay, right? Like, I mean, it just made sense. Mm -mm. There's no plan B. And many Christians get themselves in trouble because it's like, hey, we're going to try this whole Jesus thing, but if that doesn't work out, we'll always got this to fall back on. Now, I got nothing to fall back on. Either I'm going to follow Jesus or I'm not. I'm not going to do it halfway. I'm not going to be partially committed. I'm not even mostly committed. We're just going to do this. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods. So we're not going to bow to the God of culture. Not going to do it. Culture can come and go. The word of God will stand forever. God's principles are not old-fashioned. God's principles are not traditional. God's principles are biblical and timeless. It's really important that you understand that terminology. Amen, we just need a bunch of good old-fashioned churches. We don't need old-fashioned churches. We just need the red back hymnal. Page 475 is victory in Jesus. We need hymnals in the pew, amen. <laughs> That's not what we're looking for. I don't care if you sing off of a screen or you sing out of a hymnal. Honor and glorify God, come on. We're not looking to have old-fashioned churches. We don't stand for traditional marriage. Because tradition changes, culture changes. We stand for biblical values, biblical worship, biblical marriage, biblical homes, biblical headship in our homes. That's what we stand for because it's biblical. That amount of hill of beans, what you think or I think, what does the Bible say? We're going to live for that. We're going to stand for that. And look. If that means we're counted out as weird or prudes or whatever, you can say what you want to say. We're just going to stand on God's word. 
We're not going to bow down to the God of comfort. I'm not trying to live for my own personal comfort. I'm trying to live for the kingdom. Now, again, we don't swing the pendulum all the way to the opposite side and say, I'm going to purposely be uncomfortable. I'm going to take cold showers because people in developing nations don't have hot water heaters. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just asking you to prioritize the kingdom over your comfort. That's all. Stop doing what's comfortable, what's natural, what you like doing. Be willing to step out on faith and trust God in a way that you've never done before. We will not. And this is a fact, Jack. We will not bow to the God of faithlessness. As long as this guy's the pastor, this is a church that will live by faith. We're going to continue to trust God. We're going to push harder. We're going to push higher. And, and if you're new at who we call, that doesn't mean explosive growth in the church, you know. It doesn't mean we're going to go to 12 services on the weekends and create a satellite campus out somewhere else. I'm not talking about that. When I talk about push harder, push higher, I'm talking about the reach of the local church. We're going to do more for missions. We're going to, stay with me, we're going to send missionaries out from this church. We're going to plant churches here in this city out of our church. And again, somebody who doesn't understand that mindset might be saying, like, do we really need another church in our city? Look, we had 415 people here today. That accounts for one one-thousandth of our city. So to reach 400,000 people, just in our city limits, not the whole island, the island has a million people, to reach the entire population of the city limits of Honolulu, we would have to plant 1,000 who we call a Baptist churches to reach everybody. So getting the idea of like, hey, if we plant a church, you know, three-quarters of a mile up the road, let's go after and get after it and get it done. But we're not going to be limited by what we can understand, what we can feel, what's comfortable, how we do things, but we're just going to live by faith. It's encouraging to me this morning at the 8 o'clock service. Man, this place was jammed at the 8 o'clock service, jammed at the 10 o'clock service. Uh, like we normally, you, you might have noticed this today, we normally have extra comfort seating in our seats. Uh, today they're a little bit tighter. Uh, we got every chair that we own is, is out on the floor. And it was full. And we had people standing up in the back in the second service. Did you know that five years ago when we moved in this auditorium, we didn't need the space? Like this, this auditorium seats with every chair on the, the, the floor and like packed to the gills. We could fit 290 people in this auditorium. At the time that we moved over here, we were averaging maybe on a good Sunday like 160. And we had two services and they were 75% full or so over there. We didn't need the space. We weren't actively looking for a new opportunity. And man, I was just having a conversation with our landlord and I was like, hey, you know, I don't know what's going on behind us, you know, but maybe, maybe one day, you know. And he was like, oh, well, actually, you know, the city's coming through and doing some stuff. We're going to have to kick those tenants out, and we're going to gut the whole building, and it's going to be wide open after that. I was just like, oh. And I was like, when? He was like, in the next 12 months. And I was just like, oh, no. What's <laughs> <laughs> the next 24 months, next 36 months? No lie. Uh, we, we moved into this building. The AC installation was $250,000 that we did not have. We ended up having uh, equipment donated, which took a big chunk off of that. We still had to raise the money to finish this thing off. Uh, we took an offering <laughs> during Thanksgiving and Christmas that year to finish off what we owed to be able to finish this, this part of it. This was 100% by faith. And to look at it today, it was just like packed. It's just like, yes, God, you always answer faith with your provision. You always answer faith with your blessing. You'll never leave us lacking. What does the Bible say? I've never seen the righteous begging bread. God's going to meet your faith with his providence. What's he asking you to do, though? For some of you, it would be one of the biggest things in the world for you to just be serious about your faith for once. Maybe that's your step of faith. Some of you need to share your faith with somebody else. You need to learn about that. Some of you need to sign up for discipleship. Some of you need to get baptized. Some of you need to join the church and, and stop being a cheerleader and get on the field and start moving the ball up the field. Some of you need to start tithing. Some of you need to start giving towards missions. Some of you need to begin asking, hey, what does the next level of my Christianity look like? Would God use our family to go to a mission field one day? I don't even know how that would work, but I'm willing to trust God for it. 
Maybe you just need to come to a place of surrender in your heart and you say, God, there's nothing that's greater than you and whatever you ask me to do, the answer will always be yes. And it sounds like a little thing, but it has massive ramifications. 20, I'm trying to think through my timeline at this point. Probably 22 years ago, Angel and I were sitting in a church service and I don't even remember who preached, but it was a message on obedience and how God blesses obedience. And I remember at the end of that church service, she and I went, went down to the altar and, and we knelt down to pray, and I'm, I'm, I'm a young baby Christian. She is, too. We're just trying to figure life out, and we prayed a prayer, and I said, God, whatever you want us to do from here on out, we're just going to do it. Amen. She, like, looked at me like, is that it? I was like, that's it. And she's like, all right. We went and sat down. And by the grace of God, we just tried to keep that commitment. And this church is here today celebrating nine years of God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's blessing and favor on not me, not my wife, but on obedience and faith. That's it. Look, this church was built on the back of obedience and faith of God's people. 75 churches on a monthly basis gave their missions money to who we call and help us start in those early days. If they didn't, we wouldn't have made it. Look, you can't take five people and rent a 3,500-square-foot building in the middle of Honolulu. You just don't do that unless someone has partnered with you. There's 75 churches who have partnered with us financially to do that. We had people who came in those early years that weren't coming to a great children's ministry or a great auditorium or anything like that. They were coming to a dump with no people. In the early days, there were some people who came. I said, oh, we want to be here. We want God to you know, raise our kids together and stuff like that, that within 90 days they were gone. It was one of the most hurtful things in the world. Like, I thought you were with us and for us, but you weren't with us and you're not for us. But man, just keep plugging along, trusting God by faith, one week at a time, one week at a time. And, and we look, I, I look at that slideshow and just the names of those people who some of you don't even recognize any of them. It's just like stories of God's grace again and again and again and again. Every time we baptize, the story of God's grace again and again and again. Every time somebody sits down with disi- for discipleship for the first week and they sit across the table from somebody that they've never met before and they go, like, oh, kind of nervous. I don't really know what to expect from all this. It's the grace of God at work. When somebody takes somebody through discipleship for the first time, that's the grace of God at work. When somebody decides they're going to stop cussing or stop drinking or stop smoking because they just want to follow after Jesus, that's the grace of God at work. And it just continues again and again and again. But it's always predicated upon two things, obedience and faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we will not bow down. I don't care if it costs us our life. We refuse to bow down to these idols because our God is worthy. I just want us to be a church that lives by faith. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.